Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. It's truly an honor to have my newest, my next guest here on my program. Uh, he really needs no introduction to my audience, but he's going to get one. It's uh, Dr. Uh, Richard Lyman Bushman. He's the Governor Morris Pro Professor of History Emeritus at Columbia University, grew up in Portland, Oregon, and earned his undergraduate and graduate degrees from Harvard University. He has also taught at Brigham Young University, Boston University, and the University of Delaware. His From Puritans to Yankee, Character and Social Order in Connecticut, 1690 to 1765, won the Bancroft Prize in 1967. His other books include Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism, winner of the Evans Biography Award, King and People in Provincial Massachusetts, and the Refinement of America, Persons, Houses, Cities, a practicing Mormon. He lives in New York City with his wife, Claudia. Also, of course, he is the uh, well-known author of Rough Stone Rolling, and he is currently uh, co-executive director for the Center for Latter-day Saint Arts, a nonprofit based in New York City. Uh, Dr. Bushman, welcome to my program. Thank you. Pleased to be here. So, um, I will, first of all, one of my listeners, I believe he's with uh, Signature Books, he uh, uh, asked, why don't you ask a little bit about Gouverneur Morris, and thank you for giving me the pronunciation. You told me it's a Dutch name, and I should know that because I'm Dutch, but uh, tell us a little bit about him. He was the Thomas Jefferson of the Constitution. Jefferson wrote the Declaration. Um, Gouverneur Morris was the uh, draftsman for the United States Constitution. A rather conservative person, um, had some leanings towards monarchy, but uh, he was the one who gave us the exact words that we, we have in our Constitution today. Very interesting. Yes, he was a very influential uh, uh, founding father, and it's really an honor that, you know, you have, uh, uh, you have a, a title or uh, the, uh, emeritus at the Columbia University through him, and that's just really a fantastic honor that you received. So um, I just wanted to, just real quick, uh, you know, I come from an evangelical background, and uh, I've been very interested in Mormonism since I was a young child. I think when I introduced you, uh, myself to you, I had mentioned to you how I was enamored with the Arnold Freiburg paintings in the Book of Mormon at about the age of seven or eight. And those images really stuck in my head. And that probably was the beginning of my love affair with Mormonism and the Restoration. Uh, just real quick, uh, do you think that the, the what, what has been your interaction with Protestants and evangelicals and bridge building? Because that's kind of what I'm trying to do. And, and, and maybe you could offer some advice on how, how that could look in the future and, and where you think that's going. Well, it's uh, the art of being friendly and learning from one another while still maintaining your position. And I think we've got pretty good at that. There's an ongoing discussion group um, that... Uh, consisted of people from BYU and from others uh, from the evangelical uh, uh, centers. Um, um, I think you know President Mao ran the Fuller Theological Seminary. So that group worked out pretty well. Elder Holland, an apostle, addressed that group, and they found uh, many things in, in common uh, and defined the differences pretty well. I had one encounter with Mao. Um, I was invited to one of their groups and um, I asked him, is Joseph Smith possible in your point of view? And uh, that's a question he took seriously. By that I meant, is it even conceivable to an evangelical that a prophet could arise, would once again speak for God like Isaiah or Peter and um, in a way, it, it was a problem for him because Christ was thought to have completed the work of salvation. There was no more need for the law or for the prophets. So he uh, mulled that over quite a while and decided that maybe not prophets in the sense of scripture-making speakers, but uh, revelation. He was aware that Cotton Mather had seen an angel. And so we left a little space for the veil to be thin at, from time to time and humans uh, having encounters with divine beings. So we at least got that far towards the idea of um, prophets in the, in the post-Christ period. 
that is very fascinating to me because I actually, my family comes from the same religious tradition as him. They were with the Christian Reformed Church, and, uh, and, which is of the Dutch Reformed background. And uh, so he's very influential within that church. Well, my parents, before I was born, actually got involved in the charismatic renewal movement in the 60s and 70s. So I would probably answer that question a little differently because they believe that prophets and revelation uh, occurs today to this day. So if anything, uh, my movement or my faith expression of being the larger charismatic movement uh, would certainly be more open to a Joseph Smith uh, than, than what a, a Dutch Reformed would be. <laughs> so um yeah that's great yeah i'm glad to, to hear that there is a, i actually have been in touch with christopher thomas he's a good friend of mine who wrote a pentecostal road reads the book of mormon and he's made some inroads uh with having collaboration he's done some lectures uh with uh, at byu and has an association with the maxwell institute so i do think that the prospects for uh future encounters and maybe dialogue is definitely possible um you know, I really enjoyed Rough Stone Rolling. Uh, I, I, I read it three times, um, booked, uh, cover to cover, and it was a real influential book to me. One of the things that really fascinates me in particular about Mormonism is the early days of the movement. Um, I find it very relatable. Uh, Joseph Smith was, I, in my mind, a remarkable person. Uh, a religious genius, whether he believe, you believe he's a prophet or not. But let's just talk a little bit about early Mormonism. And let's talk about when the Book of Mormon, about the time the Book of Mormon came out, and people started joining the church once it was formed in April of 1830. And they didn't have anything like the first vision or, in, or any idea of an established priesthood. Uh, they hadn't really heard of the Angel Moroni story at this point. Basically, what they had was the Book of Mormon. What was the appeal in early Mormonism about the Book of Mormon and, and, and how was it, why was it so effective in bringing so many new converts early on into the movement? It's a great mystery. Uh, here it just comes out of the blue, very inauspicious or origins from a person of no standing socially or ecclesiastically or intellectually. And it must speak for some need. Uh, I think, a need for a new revelation. And um, perhaps one that dealt with the Indians, the Native Americans, the early Mormon missionaries, as this is a, promoted the book as a history of um, Native Americans. We are right in the middle of the great battles all over the country as we displaced uh, the Native population. So that may have been part of it. But what they said themselves over and over again was it sounded like the Bible. And it seemed to be uh, saying the same things the Bible did, confirming. And that doesn't necessarily strike us as a powerful argument, but the idea that there could be more scripture, I think, was significant. Uh, actually, among uh, Protestant intellectuals, the question of why there was no more scripture after the New Testament was an issue. They kept debating it. So it's, it's a question that at least in some circles was very much alive. And the Book of Mormon seemed to give them, you know, a new voice from heaven. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, it's, it is interesting to see how the book itself really attracted people and how it looked and sounded like the Bible. You know, I try to explain to some of my evangelical friends, they go and say, well, people join quote unquote cults or whatever they like to derisively call other groups that aren't their own uh, because they don't have a knowledge of the Bible. And I say, you know, uh, it's quite the opposite. The reason why the Book of Mormon took off and why there were early converts was because the people of that time had an intimate knowledge of the Bible more so than we have in society today. So it wasn't an ignorance of scripture. It was actually a preponderance. It seeped into the culture. And so it's maybe speak to how that also had an effect on it too, where uh, we had a highly literate people who knew the Bible very well. And they, and many of them found something in the Book of Mormon that really spoke to them. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize and needs to be further, further investigated. That's, a, that's an excellent point. Uh, you know, they found that there are 50,000 phrases 
of three words or more in the Book of Mormon that come from the Bible. It really sounded biblical to uh, readers in those, those days. And uh, I think that's exciting, the idea that there might be um, revelation, scripture being formed uh, in the Americas, close to home, even though in ancient times, uh, that seemed to resonate. It caught people's attention. So, you know, I, you, you, of course, you wrote the, the, the early partial biography of, of, of Joseph Smith in the 80s. Uh, and and uh, that was a fantastic book, too, by the way. I've probably read that at least twice. Um, and then and then around the late 90s, it was about that time when you decided you were going to write uh, Rough Stone Rolling. What what was the impetus for that? What, what made you decide to write this book and what kind of pushback or support did you get from people when you decided to do this? Yeah. Well, as a young graduate student in history I, and a, a participating Latter-day Saint, I had in the back of my mind that someday I might write about Joseph Smith, but I never got around to it. I had all these other projects, but um, I was approached by uh, man named Ron Esplin, who ran a research institute on Mormon history at Brigham Young and said that uh, his circle of people in that institute felt a new biography of Joseph Smith was called for, especially because his 200th anniversary was coming up of his birth. And so I, I took that very seriously and uh, launched into it. Uh, building on what I'd done before, uh, Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism. And it took me about uh, seven years to write and came out uh, uh, in the year of his, of his uh, uh, 200th anniversary. Um, and, but I had to have a, an intellectual reason. And the reason was I didn't think that any of the previous biographies did justice to Joseph Smith as a religious person. You know, Von Brody sees him as adventurous and imaginative and a little brash and kind of a, uh, an exciting character. But she really was tone deaf to religious language and religious feelings. And the other biographies, I didn't feel it done justice to the depth of, um, of his belief and Harold Bloom had recently come out with these views that Joseph Smith was a religious genius and um, that, uh, you know, he had to be taken seriously. So all of that's uh, what led me into deciding I would venture forth. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the uh, the thing about, I, 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 you know, Fawn Brody's book is interesting, but you're absolutely spot on about that. Because it's almost like she felt like people really didn't believe in anything. And I thought, you know, I think that Joseph Smith, I best can approach him and understand him as a fellow religious uh, believer. Um, I sometimes think that some have speculated that the first vision may have been what would be called today a born again experience. And I tell people that Joseph Smith can be best understood, I think, what he did in the context of him being a born again Christian. And to me, a lot of what he, his trajectory and, and everything that he did makes a lot more sense in that context than him just being a fraud. Yeah. I think there's language in his account of the first vision that strongly says that, you know, he was convicted of his sins, is what he said. And what he was interested in was the state of his soul. And in the uh, early, the first account he wrote in 1832, you know, the first words he hears from the mouth of Christ is, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. That's, you know, that is the essence of the um, born-again experience. So I think he, 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 that was the main framework he had for understanding what had happened to him. Then there's also the question of which church, which is a nominal denominational issue, but the religious issue was, what is the state of my soul? And I think that's so important for people to realize that Joseph Smith was a human being. And what I loved about your book was I grew to appreciate the man 
so much because you gave a human side to him. Whereas Brody, she was more interested in psychoanalyzing the guy. Uh, you were more interested in actually telling the human story. And so I think if Christians who might know, not quite understand, how do I approach Mormonism? How do I approach uh, Joseph Smith? Try to approach it from the context that he was a person just like us, and he was a seeker just like us. And he may very well have had a born-again experience. And I think that that's an avenue that we could take so that we could explore uh, some commonalities with each other. But uh, again, I want to compliment you so much on giving us the human side to Joseph. I think that is so important that people understand that aspect of him. Yeah. So did you, when, once you decided to uh, write this book and this is interesting because, you know, a lot of Latter-day Saints are taught a particular narrative about uh, church history and of course, you weren't afraid to deal with uh, talking about the seer stone, uh, the early polygamy, and uh, topics that the typical pew-sitting uh, Latter-day Saint may not be too aware of. So what was it like to tackle those issues? And then also, were, did you get pushback from people saying you shouldn't be talking about these things, they shouldn't be in the book? Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, I've been a historian. I've been in touch with uh, church history issues. And a lot of the things that seemed shocking to people when they read the book had been seeping in to the uh, professional historian ranks of LDS uh, scholars for a long time. So none of them was new or you know nothing shocking. It was just a matter of how weaving them into the story could be done. And it actually wasn't a strain. It you know, just flowed along pretty well. But the problem was that people had been told one version of church history for so long that it had become kind of enthroned as the truth. And even little details, like did he use the seer stone rather than the Urim and Thummim, were shocking. That he was a treasure seeker before he became a prophet was, was shocking. And... Uh, just disturbing what they felt was fixed truth was more than they could bear. And uh, so in many ways, there were all these errors that had to be sort of straightened out. None of them consequential in the sense of challenging his claims for himself or displacing him as a prophet in some way. But they were, there were a lot of them. The narrative really was wrong at one point after another. And uh, that was hard for people to bear. And it's, it's, we, we're actually going through, I think, within Mormonism, a great transition from an attitude of trying to create a history that uh, idealizes all of the events to one that's more casual about recognizing human error and mistakes, leaves plenty of room for people to be corrected along the line. Um, and that's, that's been going on for 20 years, and a lot of people are suffering as a result of it, but it's the only stable basis for our beliefs is to found them in the facts as they are in the, in the record and being willing to change if we find new information. So that, that's where we are, and it's caused a lot of disruption in the church, but I think in the long run we'll come out stronger. You know, if anything, it just puts Joseph in line with all the other prophets and writers of scripture who were flawed human beings. You know, we look at David and we just look at the, the, the flaws of so many of these patriarchs within the Bible. So to me, the fact that he was a human and he did engage in practices that people would find disturbing um, to, in, a, in a modern context, uh, actually at his time, uh, using seer stones and dowsing rods were very common uh, my grandfather, actually, in the 1920s, growing up in the prairies, uh, they used dowsing rods. And actually, he had a, a well digging business and actually used a dowsing rod to find water. And this is in the 1930s and 40s. So this isn't so far away from who Christians were at the time. And, and like I said, Joseph was using the tools that, that was common to the folk at that time. 
And so the context of the, the right place, the right time, the right context, and the fact that he actually then becomes more like a biblical prophet, because now we know he's a real man with real flaws. And I think that can actually help sustain the narrative in a way that the church can kind of have a more mature view. The members can have a more mature view of their founding prophet and, and be able to have the right context of the man. I think that's absolutely right. Idealization is a cruel thing to do to anyone, to insist that you be perfect in every regard. Um, any your own parents or the leaders of the church or your government figures, if you say they're, they're perfect, you're just asking too much for any human to bear under. So I think it's much better to be realistic and loving and forgiving and honoring people for what they do accomplish. Well, I'll tell you, just having this conversation with you about your fantastic book has been a real honor. And, and I thank you for giving me your insights in regards to that. Um, I just kind of want to move over to kind of what you're doing now or what the, the last 15 or 20 years of what you've been doing, uh, like with the Joseph Smith papers and some current projects that you're working on. Let's kind of discuss what, you, what's, what you're doing right now and how things, uh, what kind of progress you're making on your latest projects. Yeah. Well, I'm involved in various things. Uh, you know, I had a life as a, a cultural historian, and um, I, I wrote, I published two years ago with Yale a book called The American Farmer in the 18th Century, which was really a cultural history of farming, um, farm values and farm methods, which is sort of a leftover from that side of my, my life. Um, so that's uh, one project. It actually was meant to sort of um, reinforce or um, support my study of the Smith family because they were farmers and I really wanted to know the mentality uh, that uh, they shared with farmers and New England farmers in that period. So I've done that. Um, at the same time, I've been working on a book called Joseph Smith's Gold Plates, a cultural history, which is a story of how uh, the plates have uh, flourished in the American imagination from um, the Book of Mormon down to the present. There are, you know, there's a Pulitzer Prize winning play, uh, Angels in America by Tony Kushner, that has as its framework the goal, the, the idea of plates, an angel, and a prophetic mission. And uh, there are still people finding plates in, in southern Utah. So it's uh, very much alive. And so I trace all this uh, business from the very beginning uh, right down to the present as a sort of an exploration of the American imagination. So that's, that's the project I'm working on now. It's almost completed. I think uh, the manuscript will be ready to go, uh, go to a publisher in the next month or so. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I would love to get a hand on a reader's copy of that. I've been working with a few publishers, so hopefully one of them will be picking that book up and I'll be able to read that. Uh, yeah, The Plates, is, it is truly a fascinating history. And I, uh, you know, as I have been kind of maneuvering in the world of the restoration, I have been engaging Community of Christ. Uh, I have been engaging independent uh, restoration branches. I recently attended a Church of Jesus Christ uh, service, your Pentecostal cousins. Um, so I've been engaged in the full restoration. And uh, one of the things that keeps on coming back to is Joseph and those plates. Uh, it's foundational to so many of them within that group. And so, uh, and I just find it to be, uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a real touchstone that I, that so many people have in the restoration. It's a dynamic story. I'm so glad that you are engaging that because that's kind of where the interesting parts of Mormonism lay in those plates. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's an interesting incident, you know, a vision of God, a vision of an angel. There's a long history of visions of gods and visions of angels and people can sort of accept them and talk about them saying, well, it's all psychological on the one hand or others will say, well, of course, angels appear. But the gold plates are an intrusion. They, you know, they come in material form. They weigh 50 or 60 pounds. We can describe them. So here's something that 
has sort of heavenly qualities. It's protected by an angel. It's um, revealed by an angel. But Joseph Smith has to go to a hill, dig up uh, rock, uncover the plates, pick them up, carry them home. So it's sort of this, uh, this object that's a hybrid of the divine and the mundane. And it sort of moves along that boundary, uh, um, insisting that it's evidence of something that's far beyond our ordinary experience. So I, I think it's, a, it's an intriguing thing. And uh, various authors outside the church even have, have used it to sort of explore that boundary between the natural and the supernatural. What do you think of in the early accounts of uncovering the plates and bringing them home that Joseph seemed to be more enamored with the interpreters than he did with the plates? Yeah. No, that was his thrill. As he told Joseph Knight, I can see anything, you know, that it's uh, um, a marvelous gift. And partly that's because of his experience with seer stones. You know, he had used seer stones to find lost objects and attempt to find treasure. And so that made sense in terms of his framework. As a Urim and Thummim, as an interpreter of languages, of course, that, that was outside of his framework. It took him a long while to figure out that he was going to be able to translate this book himself. But uh, he loved uh, the sort of the magical qualities of the Urim and Thummim. You know, and so often I, 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 one of the most intriguing things about the story is that when they lose the 116 pages and the plates and the interpreters are taken away from him, and then eventually he's able to get the plates back, but not from some narratives I'm hearing is he didn't get the interpreters back. And that's what he was used forced to use the seer stone for the interpretation process. Well, I kind of liken that as a way, uh, I think this is another humanization and also something that is similar to uh, uh, the patriarchs is that, you know, Moses, when he first had the stone tablets, God wrote them with his finger. But then when he went down and there was the Israelites were sinning and everything, he had to go back up to the mountain. And this time he had to fashion the stone with his own hands. And he had to use his own tools to do it. He had to work harder at it. He didn't have that divine touch anymore. And I so often wonder if that is a similar analogy. I'm going to make, I'm going to, you're going to get the plates back, but I'm going to make this hard for you. You got to use this seer stone. That's going to probably make a mockery of you, but it's also, a, a, I'm teaching you a lesson. Is that, would that be an interesting analogy to pursue? That's very interesting. Um, I do make a comparison to the, um, the stone tablets because that's, probably the closest analogy in religious history, you know, a message from God engraved on a material object. And so uh, that's one of a number of uh, parallels. Actually, I hadn't heard it said exactly that way. So that's an interesting uh, thought to me. Yeah, I kind of just, uh, been, as I've been studying Mormonism I, uh, or the Restoration, I've been trying to develop my own kind of <laughs> hypotheses. And as an outsider, sometimes you can see things, you know, differently. But I think to me that because I was always intrigued, well, why is it there's a story of interpreters and, and why is there a stone? Why is it even mentioned? And to me, it's like one of those uh, bullseyes, if you will, that kind of says there's something more going on here than just somebody making stuff up. I, I, I find that whole part of the story to be very intriguing to me and, and fascinating. Yeah. No, uh, uh, I agree with everything you said. So um, uh, I, I kind of wanted to touch base, you know, uh, we were um, talking a little bit, um, one of your other current projects, I believe is also having to do with some of the art and the restoration, uh, you're, you're working on another uh, work on that. I think we discussed at the MHA. Yes, I, I'm not doing scholarship on it, but I'm involved in an organization that's dealing with uh, Latter-day Saint art. Okay, so this is where the Center for Latter-day Saint Arts is that you're co-executive director of. Uh, I know that art is like a real uh, passion for you. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about uh, your love of art. And I think even my love of art because it was Arnold Freiberg that uh, brought me into the restoration or brought my interest into it. 
let's just discuss that a little bit and where, where you're going with that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not an artist myself. Uh, my art form and closest I come is, is writing. My father was an artist and uh, I have children and grandchildren who are deeply into the arts. So it's some, my grandmother. So it's kind of uh, in my family atmosphere. But um, I came to this, uh, this field um, after I'd raised money for the Mormon Studies Chair at the University of Virginia, and also had helped raise money for the Claremont Chair, and realized the importance of culture, and that there were Latter-day Saints who recognized that culture, the culture of the church was significant. That is, the thought the history, the writing, uh, how we contemplated in our own situation in the world, our own history, and uh, wondered what the next step would be. And it just occurred to me that we might do something more with art, because I knew there was a lot of Mormon art being produced, not just visual art, but music and everything under the sun. And I learned from my compatriot in this venture, Glenn Nelson, that there are 1,600 Mormon composers who have published music. A hundred of them have PhDs in music or musicology. And um, so I began to feel that um, this might be a new way to sort of tell our story. You know, we're such a proselyting church. We're always trying to find a way to attract attention, be persuasive. And art is one that is low key, it's not high pressure, it's not salesmanship, but it's just his presentation of who we are. This is what we feel, this is what we value. And um, so we started this organization and uh, started having festivals where we presented various forms of American art and it caught on. There were a lot of people who were willing to donate, a lot of people willing to participate. And of course the artists themselves were thrilled all artists need audiences, and we were providing audiences for them and attention. We were doing scholarship on it. And uh, so we got tremendous support from LDS artists, and uh, we've got some support from the church. Not We don't go for them officially. They're not supporting us financially, but they're sympathetic to what we're doing. And, and uh, we think of ourselves as Latter-day Saints on a Latter-day Saint mission. So there's kind of a, a joining of intentions and purposes there. So what does Latter-day Saint art look like that would differentiate it from Christian art, let's say? That's a, um, a good question. It's the same question that's asked for many decades, what is American art? It's a question you can never answer but it's always interesting to pursue. Uh, and we define America, uh, Latter Saint art, as art by, for, or about Mormons. So it's a very broad definition. Any art that's produced by someone who identifies as Latter day Saint, we call Latter day Saint art. And then it becomes our problem to figure out. Where does this very potent culture manifest itself in, in their work? So my good friend, Christopher Thomas, who wrote the book, uh, Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon, has a chapter in the book devoted to uh, art that was inspired by the Book of Mormon. And he, of course, talks about Minerva uh, t-shirt. Uh, but he also talks about a piece from David Hiram Smith, about Lehi's vision, which through his research he discovered is most likely the earliest extant piece of art that was uh, inspired by a Book of Mormon story. Um, I don't know if you've heard that before and if you're aware of that piece, but it's actually kind of a stunning piece. No, that's news to me. That's uh, very interesting indeed. We, uh, we're... Um, in the process of putting together a massive retrospective of Latter-day Saint visual art from the beginning to the present, we're going to publish a book with Oxford, 700-page book, 24 authors, 
and then have a show that will open in New York and then move to Salt Lake and other places. And our curators would be very interested to know about a work by David Hiram Smith. Uh, do, do you know anything about the provenance? Where is it now? And uh, it's, it belongs to the community of Christ. And it's, uh, I believe it's maybe at their Nauvoo Center, but I'm not sure. It, but definitely it is in the possession of the community of Christ. And actually, Christopher wanted to put that book on his cover, or that picture on his cover, but the greens, there's a lot of green, dark green in the painting, and he just couldn't quite get that image to work on a cover. So he went with one of Minerva's paintings on the cover of his book. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. And it's definitely uh, an object that is very important. And, and the dates fit. They don't think that there has, they have not uncovered any art that was inspired by the Book of Mormon that predates that piece. Yeah. Well, that's, that's uh, the date would be what? In the 18... Uh, I think 1864. Yeah. yeah. And this wasn't long before he actually uh, was institutionalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was a fascinating figure, such a high-strung temperament, and I think he did have an artistic mentality, so it doesn't surprise me at all that he would have uh, done something like this. I'll tell our curators about it. That's great. Yeah, give, give Lachlan McKay a call. I think he'll be able to locate it for you. Okay. Great. So, yeah, that that's, uh, to me, is a real important find on his part. And I've been trying to let people know about it because even the community, Lackland, he didn't, wasn't aware of it. But he said, yeah, the dates sound about right. That, that that probably will, that is probably about the earliest painting. So, yeah, definitely something that should be um, pursued. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I guess I, I never considered myself an artist. But then once I started uh, delving into uh, my studies and really started pursuing this channel, I kept on running into art. And how important it has a role that it does play. Um, do you feel like the art in general is something that has been taken a back seat within the LDS church? Is it something that should be featured more prominently? Um, so often I feel like a lot of the paintings, almost you go to just about any ward and they have just about the same paintings in them now. Do you think that there should be more diversity in art, even within public spaces of worship within the LDS faith? Right. We, we use our art a lot to illustrate. That is, there's an event. We want to make a visual um, event from the Book of Mormon or event from um, um, the Christ and life of Christ. So it's just illustrative. And we want to make it simple. You look at it, you know immediately what you've got. But artists are more like testimony meetings. You know, they deal with material and process it personally. What does it mean? So you get into deeper personal senses of what, uh, what an event meant, or sometimes it's totally abstract. And um, that kind of art, when you encounter it, may be puzzling, you don't know what it is, but it compels you to ask what's going on and in the process of trying to understand the art, you learn more about yourself because it becomes a dialogue between you and the painter behind the, and the art sort of stands between. So it, it enlarges the soul. Well, you know, an illustration may give you a few more details of what happened, but it doesn't really change you. It doesn't uh, deepen you at all. Uh, so is there a particular piece of Mormon art that's come out in, in the last few years that really has impressed you or is your favorite piece that you want to describe and tell our audience about? I give a talk on art of the first vision because the first vision has been depicted over a hundred times, well over a hundred times, and it's always different. And I make the case that painters become theologians because they have to, in making art because they have to make decisions. What moment in time do they show? What uh, attitude is God high above, you know, just a light? Or is he walking in the grass, you know, his feet in the grass? Minerva Tigert has him strolling with his son with his arm around him. 
you know, in the grass with the flowers growing up around their feet. So you get all different views uh, of God uh, through that. Um, and one of those paintings by a man named Forster, Forster it shows, uh, shows Joseph just before he realizes God is there and is still frightful out of the dark forces that had assaulted him. So he's fleeing and God and Christ come down and Christ is reaching out towards Joseph as he has his back to Christ, but is going to trying to get away and Christ is trying to catch him. Meanwhile, God the Father has his arm extended and is, um, is dispersing the evil forces. So it's God as protector against evil and Christ as comforter and support um, to help you in your distress. I think it's a, it's a fabulous picture. Tells so much, you know, about um, our relationships to our Father in heaven. Oh, that sounds like a beautiful, the description sounds beautiful. I'm going to have to look that work up. You know, one of the more interesting things, one of the compliments I always give about uh, Latter-day Saint um, tradition is Joseph in many ways um, had a humanistic view. He made God more human and more approachable as opposed to maybe the Calvinist view of God. And I imagine that that humanist portrayal of God and our, your relationship with the Son is deeply influential in LDS art. I think it's the very heart of the difference in LDS art and maybe the heart of the difference in LDS theology, that God is material. As soon as God becomes material, everything changes in your, your theology. And we haven't quite worked out all the differences, but there are many people who have approached the subject, and I think I see that embodiment, you know, becomes divinity. It's not something to escape. It's not a stage. It's not a limitation. It's uh, the place where the divine dwells. So, in effect, God and his son serve the purpose that the son serves in Christian theology. God is remote, he's the judge, he's all-encompassing, he's very abstract in Christian theology, but the son is the friend, the comforter. Uh, and But we make God the Father also um, sort of an idealized, uh, exalted human. You know, so often when I think of the first vision, and Joseph having this encounter with the Methodist minister and this Methodist minister basically rebuffing him. I always tell people, I said, you know, this is one argument that favors an early telling of the two personages in the first vision. Because I said, back then, if somebody had an encounter with Jesus and you went to a Methodist minister, they'll be, what did he say? But the second you say, I saw God and the son, that would cause the Methodist minister to rebuff them right there on the spot. <laughs> Where's the Trinity if you see them, two separate beings? Exactly. Exactly. But I often think, you know, why is it that this Methodist minister would have rebuffed him? But if Joseph already in the early 1820s was describing two beings, then I completely understand. Because I think many evangelicals, if the story of the first vision was just Jesus and Joseph, I think he, that would, the story would be much more accessible to evangelicals than it being two beings. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, just think that's so fascinating to me. Um, so I'm thinking here, um, well, just tell me a little bit, uh, you know, the Joseph Smith Papers Project. I know you're involved in that. Uh, what is, how is that coming along? It's almost complete. Uh, it's got started in 2001 and uh, projected many volumes. No one could depict quite how many, but uh, they're still finishing up the last volumes of the document series that will go to the end of Joseph Smith's life. But uh, they're in the spring of 1844. They haven't published all of those, but they're all ready uh, for printing and then the, the final volume will come out. So it's been um, about a 20 year project. 
um, but it's finished. And it, they, you know, it's, it's marvelous to have this multi-volume set. I don't even know how many. There must be 20, 25 volumes uh, in total. Uh, and that's a nice work of scholarship. But it, is, it represents a turning point in Latter-day Saint history because the, this, these papers are facing up to every problem. They don't shy away from anything. They're not hiding anything. They present the documents exactly as they were. So it really is the embodiment of the transparency principle. We're not going to cover up things. And they deal with controversial matters even-handedly, factually. Uh, they present you know, problems uh, in their disruptive side, but uh, also from the Joseph's uh, point of view. So it's, uh, it's, it's monumental really in its achievements. What, uh, as you've been involved in this project, uh, what, what are some surprises you encountered or new things that you learned that, uh, that really stick out to you? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I, I read all of the texts before they actually go to press. I'm on the advisory board now. I'm not an editor anymore. I'm an advisory board, but I see all these texts. And I'm still fascinated with everyone. You know, I've worked on Joseph Smith all these years. Still, it's, just, it's a series of details here and there. These researchers have followed up every lead. They give you cultural background. Uh, it would make writing a biography much harder because you'd have so much information you, uh, now than uh, I had when I was getting started. The big uh, change is that we realized Joseph Smith was involved in many more lawsuits than we'd recognized. He, uh, you know, a hundred or more. He's constantly engaged in a suit of some kind and began early in his life, 1826 on, and uh, right up to the, the very end. And, it, you know, the, the, the um, assassination ends in a lawsuit. It's a case in court. So he really lived his life in court. And somehow that would have to be taken into account because the language of some of the revelations is legalistic. You know, Section 132 on polygamy has a lot of legal language in it. So you have the feeling that it's not just Christian biblical language that shapes his mind, but also uh, legal language that he had heard in so many times in his case in court. When you were researching uh, Ruston Rowling, how, uh, how much access were you given to some of those papers that were like, for instance, the, the Council of 50 Minutes? Uh, did you ever have access to those at, at the time of your book? There were uh, two depositories. One was the major church archives, and I had access to everything there. There's no problem. But then there were items that was in the First Presidency's vault. Uh, and no one knew how they got there exactly, um, but the Council of 50 Minutes were among them. And uh, uh, you know, the story that's told now, I suppose it's close to the truth, is that uh, Joseph Fielding Smith wanted to study them and he was looking at them and then just put them in the vault and then he died and they were in the vault, and the people afterwards thought they must be there for a reason, so they didn't want to let go of it, uh, even though when we got to the minutes, they weren't that uh, disruptive. But eventually, Marlon Jensen persuaded the First Presidency we needed to have them all out. Um, and they are very interesting and shed a new light, but not um, they don't alter the story any. So even if I'd had them, I would have changed a few sentences, but the narrative would have been essentially the same as it is now. You know, as I've been encountering various historians and scholars, um, I've noticed that a lot of them tell me that the church doesn't even know what it has and that there are just boxes full of old diaries and things that just aren't, they don't even know what they have anymore. If you were made church historian and you were able to, uh, organize it, would, you, would that be one of the first things you do is you just lay inventory everything and get everything uh, to, to know what you have? I mean, to me, I find that fascinating. 
Well, I, I would begin by questioning the assertion they got loads of stuff they haven't looked at. Okay. Uh, I, that may be true, but uh, that's the kind of folktale that okay. uh, develops that um, may or may not be true. Because I think they really are sincerely trying to look at, look at everything. But BYU also has piles of stuff that uh, comes in. We, we're putting all of our family papers, uh, many, many feet of our stuff that they're only gradually working their way through to uh, uh, make it available. So, um, yes, I would certainly try to get everything out that's, that's there. And just one final question. Um, what, 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 well, Leonard, Leonard Arrington, uh, what, what kind of person was Leonard Arrington like? He was the most generous, kind-hearted, sensitive person you can imagine. And my wife, Claudia, uh, got involved in doing some women's history. And uh, out of the blue, he reached out to her and said, how can I help provide source material, give them a little money to subsidize publication? Uh, so he, he was just alert, not just of his own work, but where things were happening anywhere in the church on development of church history and would reach out and help. When I got my first job at BYU, um, I arrived and I got a letter from Leonard, and Leonard from Utah State welcoming me to Utah and to the company of LDS historians. He just sort of was watching the whole field and trying to make everyone feel at home and give them support. And he was so jolly and good-humored, the, the ideal Santa Claus figure, um, and such a huge memory, knew everything. So he was just a fabulous figure who uh, deeply altered uh, church history and really laid the groundwork for the transparency that was to follow uh, in the tw 21st century. Yeah, having the opportunity to attend my first Mormon History Association conference uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, the spirit of Leonard uh, Arrington looms large in that conference. Yeah, and deservedly so. He deserves a lot of credit. So I just want to thank you, uh, Dr. Bushman, for taking the time to come on this little upstart podcast YouTube channel and for us to be able to have this engaging conversation. And uh, I just want to thank our audience as well for all the uh, support that you've been giving this channel and just remind everybody to like and subscribe and hit the notification button for when a new video is released. Uh, Dr. Arrington, once again, thank you so much for coming on. All right. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Very good.